when film criticism is as provocative as ever, Feelin' Film ventures to change the discussion from what we hate about a film to what we love about it. We judge more on emotional experience than technical merit, because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome everyone to the final Feelin' Film podcast episode of the year. I'm Aaron, and with me is my co-host Patch. Hey everyone. And in this special mini-sode, we will be having a conversation about our year in movies from 2017. We are extremely excited for this, because last year the discussion was an absolute blast. Instead of just giving you our top 10 films list, which you can find on feelinfilm.com, we're going to talk about some of our favorite performances, our highs and lows, and even our favorite podcast episodes. We really think that you'll enjoy this one as much as we're going to, and with that, we should just get started. So Patrick, let's kick this off just like last year, shall we? By talking about our favorite first-time viewings of films that were not released in 2017. This is a really great segment because it's so wide open and there's no telling what each other is going to pick. Would you do the honor and share us one of yours? I absolutely would. There was this movie called Point Break back in night. No, I'm kidding. That's not the one. I'm just kidding. <laughs> okay. If that, I was about to flip my lid. <laughs> well, the first one is one that we actually did an episode on and it was Scott Pilgrim versus the world. I had actually never seen this movie. I'd only heard tell. And I believe this was my first uh, introduction into the, uh, the world of, of Edgar Wright in terms of, bombastic style and just over the top visuals and whatnot. And I could not have been more pleased with my <laughs> experience with it. I I just, I was floored by how much I enjoyed it from the very beginning. I was, I remember watching the movie and just taking copious notes. Like, Oh, I'm going to talk about this. I'm going to talk about that. It's just such a visual. Uh, I won't call it a masterpiece, but I'll, I'll call it a, a visual just treat to watch because Everything about it is just so flamboyant. It's very um, visually just in just engulfing because you have dialogue and you have these thought bubbles and you have points and all this stuff. And watching it, I was just smiling from ear to ear. So to get a chance to actually talk about it was was such a treat because the thing I like about this show is that if there are blind spots that that we have, we get a chance to watch the movie and those films have a chance to be elevated on our top 100s or top 2000s or whatever, or at least on list of like, hey, I would recommend this movie to anyone. And Scott Pilgrim versus the world did that. I absolutely love the performances. I love the whole overall story. And even just the the method by which the story was being told. Edgar Wright is fantastic. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I, I was so happy that you enjoyed this movie. It was one of those where I love it so much and it was going to be a real drag or a bummer if you didn't. But I also knew going into it just because of its musical nature and, and pop culture video game type style that you probably were going to dig it. So it made me really happy. And that was also a really good episode of the show, by the way. I don't remember um, what episode number that was, but maybe it'll come up later. Who knows? Um, but yeah, that's a great pick. If I'd have seen that this year for the first time, that would probably been on my list too. Uh, but it wasn't. For me, <laughs> I'm going to start... By talking about a mini series. And so I'm just going to start cheating right away. Okay. We've gotten a set number of each of these for each category, and I'm going to break the rules like crazy. So I just figured, why not do it right off the bat? Uh, this mini series is 
kind of like a movie though. It's called Generation Kill. And in November of 2017 of this year, uh, I was attempting to watch one more movie for every single day. Uh, maybe it was October. Sorry. In October, everyone watched one more or one scary movie, one horror movie for every day of October. So I was like, oh, I'm going to try to do this for uh, with war movies because I'd already seen a couple that month. And first thing is that it's really, really hard. And I will never attempt a 31 movies in 31 days. Not with your schedule. <laughs> not, not with my schedule. Not, not with movies that you have to choose. I think that's the difference. Like I probably watched 31 movies in 31 days multiple times, but it's not sitting down to watch stuff that's on a certain list. You know what I mean? Right. right. So it's very difficult. Um, but one of the ones that came out of this war challenge was uh, recommended to me uh, by Josh, uh, who's a co-host of the science fiction film podcast, one of my favorites. And um, they do some mentoring for us and they're supporters of our show on Patreon as well. But he really loved this miniseries called Generation Kill. He's a Marine himself. Uh, and this is what this this series is about. It's about Marines preparing to invade Iraq at the beginning of Operation Iraqi Freedom. Uh, and they have an embedded journalist among them. Everything about this show, this miniseries, this TV, this movie um, is real men in real war. It is absolutely the most accurate depiction of warriors in battle that I think I've ever seen, at least as I have known soldiers and sailors and my career in the Navy of 15 years. So if you've ever wanted to know what it's like to walk a mile in a warrior's boots, I feel like this is what you want to watch. And it's not pretty. Okay. It's ugly warts and all it's mistakes. It's guys not being faithful. Uh, it's the way that they talk when they're actually in the desert alone with only each other and the rest of the world is an afterthought to them, their lives are completely different than they are when they're back home being uh, whatever they are. And it's just, it is mind blowing. It is engrossing. Um, it stars Alexander Skarsgård, I believe uh, is, is the one he was in true blood. Yeah. I think that's who it is. Um, and then I don't know who else is in it, but it's, it's really, really good. I, I was kind of floored by it to be honest. And so I, I just had to mention it. Very cool, man. The fact that you, I love the fact that you said it's kind of a movie to kind of insert it into, into what we have a mini series, just a really long movie with lots of breaks, right? <laughs> yeah. I'm going to keep cheating. So just, just don't even just throw out whatever Yeah, okay. rules don't apply. So there was a video game that I played last year. no, <laughs> <laughs> we're not going to go there. Okay. So I guess it was maybe in either October or November. I was scrolling through the Facebook group and our, uh, one of our contributors, Jeremy, he puts up a, uh, you know, what are we watching tonight? And I believe one of our, one of our, uh, our, our active members put this movie up called love and mercy. And it was a biopic that came out back in 2014 and it starred uh, John Cusack and Paul Dano. And I didn't know, and, and Elizabeth Banks. So Elizabeth Banks, I knew. John Cusack, I did. Paul Dano, I didn't. So I like John Cusack quite a bit. And Elizabeth Banks, I've grown to really, uh, really like her performances, particularly in the um, in the Pitch Perfect series. I think she's she's funny in that. She's also in some of the uh, 
some of the mockumentaries that that came out uh, several years ago, Best in Show, uh, those things. But what really grabbed me was that it had to do with the life of Brian Wilson, the front man for the Beach Boys. Now, I grew up watching the Beach Boys or listening to the Beach Boys. You and I talked about this as a as a what we've been up to. Um, we had our own radio station, Cool 95, that played all the oldies. And the Beach Boys, of course, made the cut there. So when I found out that it was available to stream on Amazon Prime for free, because I love watching free movies, I decided to to give it a shot. And I got to tell you, man, this thing was incredible. It's Like I said, it's a biopic about Brian Wilson, but it takes place in two different time periods. It's Paul Dano plays Brian Wilson in the 60s, where he's dealing with this uh, psychosis uh, as he's trying to come up with this new uh, cutting edge album. And it's what eventually the album Pet Sounds became. But in addition to that, there's a parallel story of Brian Wilson in the 80s as a broken individual who's under the watchful eye of this Dr. Eugene Landy. And he's played by Paul Giamatti. And it's one of these movies that you don't want to believe is true because it's about a tragic individual. Brian Wilson, I only knew him as a musician. I didn't know about his mental illness and the things that he dealt with. And it's a movie that's not hard to watch, but it's hard to digest after you finished it because you're like, wow, I can't believe all these things happened. The performances are, are pretty outstanding, particularly Paul Giamatti as Landy. I mean, there's a, there's a moment in the movie that if you watch it, you're going to be like, you want to shoot this guy in the face because of the way in which he treats Brian. And I'm watching this and I'm going, I, I, I begin to just feel this incredible empathy for for Wilson in both of these time periods, the standout performance for me, uh, at least the one that was very surprising was Elizabeth, Elizabeth Banks. This is one of the more dramatic roles that I've seen her in. And so she plays the love interest of Brian Wilson in the eighties and the way in which she comes about and develops this relationship with him. It's incredibly tender and touching. And overall it, it left me with a feeling of, I want to know more. I want to know more about his life. I want to revisit Pet Sounds because I didn't appreciate it as a as a listener the first time around. It's one that I want to own eventually, and for the time being, I'm going to hold off on that. But it's it's a very powerful movie, and it was an incredible surprise when I discovered that this year, and uh, was surprised that I didn't um, see it when it when it came out initially in 2014. But really, really good. Sounds like it. I have I have yet to catch up with it. Um, I'll probably watch it eventually, based off of your recommendation and and Jake Jacobs or Jeremy's as well. I think both of them had seen it, uh, but it's I don't know why it never appealed to me much. And maybe because I don't have the affection for the Beach Boys growing up that you do, and I know many others have. I mean, I I, I know their music. I know all of their music and their songs, and went through an oldies phase when I was in high school. But uh, I would I just never really thought about them much or or been into their music uh long term so uh, i will definitely check it out love biopics and this one sounds like a good one my second pick 
uh, is actually two movies. <laughs> I told you, I told you I'm breaking the rules here, man. I, I just, I can't, can't do it. Um, <laughs> the face you're making. Uh, those two movies are two films that I saw for the first time within a two week period of each other. Okay. So I saw them within a 15 day span and that, that is Casablanca and 12 angry men. Now, both of these films are being mentioned because they both vaulted into my top 10. They were as no brainer picks as I've ever seen. Um, two of the only movies that I've seen classics wise that I felt a hundred percent lived up to the hype that came with them. Most of the time that doesn't happen. Most of the time those movies are like, eh, okay, that was probably good back in the day or that was really, really good. And I can see why artistically that's important, but it doesn't really get me right now. These two are completely different. Um, specifically Casablanca, I ended up seeing it again on the big screen this year for its 75th anniversary. And that was just a mind blowing experience, Patrick. This movie is incredible. It's amazing. I love it so much. Um, my heart explodes when I watch it. I have no idea where it's going to end up the next time I do a top 100, but it's going to be very, very, very high. Um, I kind of joked in a review of it that I think if I just keep watching as many movies as I have been the last few years, that within maybe a 10 year span, the entirety of my top 10 favorite films are just going to be musical and or dramatic romance movies with really great dialogue Uh, because with Casablanca and then La La Land, uh, last year, I feel like those two are, they have a lot of similarities uh, in the, the type of stories. I know that they are different, but for me, they, they hit a similar emotional beats. Um, and I, I really adored it. And then 12 Angry Men uh, is just stunning as far as a, a piece of actual art. I was floored at the way that this film was, was made and all shot in one room um, the acting in it is superb. The room's aesthetics, the, uh, the, the heat, you can feel it and the intensity. And it's so relevant today. I, it's, it's sad, honestly, that it's still that relevant today, but it absolutely is awesome, amazing film, uh, both of these. And so they were very, 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 very awesome experiences for me this year. Well, I am so glad you got a chance to watch both of those. I haven't seen Casablanca in years. So I think at some point it will probably make its way to my television more than likely if we cover it on the podcast. But um, if not, I'll always have 12 Angry Men because that's definitely one of my favorites. I'm so glad that you got to watch that one. And I love the fact that you mentioned this one room uh, setting. And I think that was the subject of our poll question that week was other movies yeah. that had had favorite one, single location films. Right. Mm-hmm. And and I think there's such a such a power behind that because then you have to focus on the characters. Unless the room itself is like a cabin in the woods type thing where the the cabin itself is a is another character. But in a lot of ways I think we established that the room itself was a character because of the heat, because of the way in which the jurors sat with each other and 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 the order in which they sat. I thought it was pretty pretty powerful. Number three, um, I'm not going to cheat because this is actually, you know, this is multiple movies or miniseries, but it is, of course, a documentary because my list would not be complete without a documentary. And this is a movie that, a doc that came out back in 2009 called Clean Flicks. Now, I, 
I believe you're familiar with this, but I don't know if all of our listeners are familiar with the um, the streaming service VidAngel, where you can subscribe and using Netflix or HBO or Amazon, you can actually, based on preferences, filter out language, nudity, violence, just based on the preferences that you want. You're familiar with this type of service, right? Oh, I am. Yes. Yeah. And there's a lot of controversy behind it. I know it went offline for a while because of injunctions by major studios. So VidAngel has become kind of the the focal point of, of this new type of technology. But what I didn't know was that this was actually, VidAngel is more of a kind of an up and coming version of a pioneering uh, technology that existed back in the mid 2000s. Back in the mid 2000s in Utah, there were DVD retailers that were essentially taking movies, purchasing them, and then quote, cleaning them for the customers in the Salt Lake City area. And they were repurposing them, renting them out. And there were several of these movie stores. And so this documentary talks about this particular, uh, this particular chain called Clean Flicks that was owned by the several people. And it really just explored the, 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 the lifespan of the, of the company, how they basically, how they actually edited the films, the controversy behind a lot of the major studios filing an injunction. But what was interesting about this was not just that. The back half of the documentary focuses specifically on one of the retailers who, despite the injunction, continued to uh, to set, to rent these cleaned up movies and to not give too much away, you find out more about him as a person and it's not great stuff. <laughs> well, obviously if you're breaking the law, then you're probably a little bit shady anyway, but the documentary focuses on him. It focuses on the, the area of Salt Lake and how the culture surrounding that city being heavily Mormon based, how the culture influenced these shops to open up because of the demand. And it really posed a ton of questions to its audience about, well, what's really wrong about this? Because at the time, these retailers weren't really doing anything illegal. I mean, they were purchasing copies of the disc, so they owned them and then were repurposing them for their own customers. And you can make the arguments that you want to. And this, this documentary obviously allows you that, that brevity to be able to, to make certain arguments. It creates a really fantastic discussion, but more than anything, it focuses on the people that are involved in the, in the area as customers in the area as retailers and how those stores change the landscape of what the movie industry um, does in terms of how it edits its films. One of the arguments that was made, and I don't think this is a spoiler, is why don't you just give us airline copies that have edited footage already? And the argument was, well, you're not the airline. You're not our customer, and it would cost you way too much. What a ridiculous argument. I know. That's a ridiculous and, argument. But it's interesting because even today – with with VidAngel, we get those we've gotten those same kinds of arguments, those same kinds of pushbacks, and I think it's it's interesting to me that that dilemma hasn't gone away. That there have just been different ways around getting through 
the loopholes or getting through the the legality of editing film. Right. But yeah. I mean, and there always will be. Right. And so as, as, as a, yeah. So as a documentary, it's really fascinating. It's one that I've actually watched a couple of times since then. Uh, I watched it earlier this year and then watched it again to kind of pick up on some other stuff, knowing kind of what some of the things that are going to be revealed are, but, but it's fascinating. Cool. Well, I'll have to check that one out. I, I don't, I've never used Vin Angel myself, but I know all about it and have been part of many groups that have debated it in depth and I've read lots and lots. And so um, hearing about the history of that is, is intriguing. So my final, final one for this is actually just one movie. Uh, it's a, what? <laughs> it is, it's a South Korean horror drama fantasy detective story. Okay. That I watched in February of 2017 and actually had back-to-back viewings. Uh, the first was at night, and then the next morning I ended up watching it immediately again. So this movie is called The Wailing, and it's about an epic battle between good and evil for the souls of a village. And it's intricately woven into a crime drama with pretty thrilling twists and turns. It's got 99% on Rotten Tomatoes right now, so... This is a movie that I am championing and I feel like people need to see. Um, it's got like 74 total reviews. It is really, really amazing. So from the opening of the film, it starts with a Bible verse that tells us this is going to be a ghost story that is steeped in religious ideas. And that verse comes from the book of Luke, Luke and it is Luke 24, 37 to 39 says, but they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why no doubts arise in your hearts? See my hand. Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Now, Patrick, that put me in an incredible headspace immediately. Like that's the movie I'm going to get. I was engaged. And for something that has subtitles, that was really good because it drew me in and it gave me reason to really pay attention to every detail. That's part of why I needed to watch it again that second time. All the way to the end of this film, these themes collide with Eastern mysticism, cultural taboos, xenophobia to create one of the most unique and challenging films that I've ever seen. Honestly, after viewing it that first night, I spent the rest of the time I was awake on Google searching for answers, trying to figure out things in this movie. I watched it again the next morning and I I still was floored by it. I find myself like so many times relating to the bumbling father character in this film who becomes the hero. And it really makes me kind of take stock of the value that my own family holds in my life because that's a big element of this film and how his story progresses for me honestly it it's kind of my horror masterpiece right now it's it's like what the exorcist is to so many people who saw the exorcist when the exorcist came out um it's i don't know it's just something that sticks with me I feel like it's one I'm going to continue to rewatch and just explore every scene in detail. Um, it's twisted. It's dark. It's very, very um, 
scary in the end. It's, it's steeped, like I said, in these religious themes and these ideas and biblical stuff as well, very specifically. And I just, I, I love it. I think it's, I think it's incredible. So it's the wailing. Okay. Well, I'm going to go ahead and say that your repeat viewings can make up for my non viewings because of the fact that it's horror. So I'm going to live vicariously through you on that one and hopefully have a tertiary emotional response like you did, but I'm really glad you enjoyed it. It's scary in the way that the witch is scary. Yeah. Versus in the way that something with lots and lots of blood and gore is scary, which is almost worse. Like it's, it's depiction of Satan is right there with a witch as the scariest I've ever seen on film for me. I gotcha. Like I gotcha. terrifying wise. Um, I had a couple honor. Did you have any honorable mentions? Um, no, I think the only other one that was, that was coming to mind for me was um, another documentary called rewind this. And it was a documentary about the, the age of the VHS and how it rose to power in the, uh, in the home as well as the video store. And uh, it, it was a lot of fun. Were you just on a VHS documentary run there for a while? Because that and Clean Flicks seemed to both kind of... Clean Flicks was DVD, wasn't it? Oh, it was the DVD area. Okay. Mid-2000s. Okay. Well, my my honorable mention is just a couple quick ones. Uh, The Adventures of Prince Ahmed. I saw this for the first time. Amazing. It's like the first, the oldest animated film that we still have in existence. Incredible 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 animation and story based on the the tales of arabian nights uh lawrence of arabia speaking of arabia uh, i saw that in 70 millimeter this year it was my first ever viewing of it and oh my goodness um this movie defined the epic the hollywood epic (laughs) and absolutely understand why i love it it's amazing don't know when i'll revisit it again because it is very 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 long but it works like you need I think seeing it in a theater with an intermission worked really well. It's it's a lot easier to not get distracted like you would trying to watch this at home. So I was really grateful that that was my first time viewing. What's the runtime on it? Um, it's three hours. It's a little over three hours, I think. Okay. It's so long. about VVS. Three and a half. Three and a half, maybe three forty. It's long, dude. It is super long. Um, the red shoes, just stunning visuals. This is part of my like watching movies that inspired La La Land. Uh, project that I'm kind of slowly working through. Loved it. And the other one is Rashomon, which is a Kurosawa film. I had watched uh, Seven Samurai the year before and really enjoyed it. And so I checked out Rashomon as my second Kurosawa. It's definitely my favorite. They're both amazing films. But Rashomon kind of really started this, this film plot device of various characters telling the same story from different perspectives and it's awesome it's really intriguing you know where you're getting like this character is telling you what happened and then this other character is telling you what happened from from their side and you you never know until the very end who's actually telling the truth and of course like most of these movies it's really kind of somewhere in the middle amazing 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 film love 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 Rashomon so that that's mine all right next category moving on Favorite performances. Now, I couldn't remember if this was supposed to be... I know we have four. I don't remember if it was supposed to be two female and two male. I just picked... Well, I didn't even just pick four (laughs) as I cheated again. But I picked performances in general that I thought were really fantastic. Do you want me to go ahead and grab... Go go start with my number one? Go ahead, yeah. All right, well, my my number one is uh, my pick for the best supporting 
actor of the year, and that is Willem Dafoe in The Florida Project. He is the picture of grace in the face of those who don't deserve it. Um, in this film, he is gentle, um, he is humble, but he is a flawed father figure to all of the tenants living in his motel. I love, love his character. Um, he really grounds this film. There's a lot going on and he is like the one steady constant keeping this thing afloat and keeping many of these families alive in many ways. And there's a staggering scene in this movie where he meets up with a would be child molester essentially and has an interaction where he is getting this guy off the property. And it's just, it's so emotionally powerful. Um, and then there's a couple scenes where he interacts with a young man, uh, helping him move some equipment around. And we don't get a lot of backstory on this character or what this relationship is. It's just kind of alluded to that perhaps this is his own son. And maybe he has his own problems with his own father son relationship. And yet he is serving as this surrogate to all of these characters in this film and specifically the main family uh, of um, Haley and Mooney that are the main characters. So I love him in this. It's probably my favorite performance of him. I, I just, I couldn't believe how much he elevated this movie and, you know, he's in the film, he's working with brand new actresses for the most part who've, never really done this definitely not not done this on this scale and yet through interviews i've learned how welcoming he was how helpful he was just genuinely excited to be there and uh and bring them up give them tips and pointers and um yeah he's he's a big reason why this movie is high on my my personal top 10 list for the year and it really touched me well he is a Definite standout. I really enjoyed his performance as well. I think you're right in that he's an anchor for the movie as well as for the 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 hotel that he manages. And that scene this is gonna sound really creepy, but the scene with the pedophile, that, that scene was probably my favorite of his in terms of how he orchestrated that whole thing and the way in which it he just he took charge. In that moment you could tell how much he cared for the people living in his hotel. And and I mean living because obviously these guys are camped there. They're almost, they're, they're paying squatters essentially. <laughs> and I, I think that when I, when I watch his performance, he is, he's steady and he knows how to, to handle the things that are coming at him. Even when he feels a little out of, out of control, I think he's still that the steadiest hand in that, in that whole cast, which is appropriate. Yep. You yeah. needed one. Yeah. Uh, for me, earlier this year, the thing I can appreciate most about a guy like M. Night Shyamalan is the fact that he can give me movies that I can digest that are thrillers and slightly horror. But Split gave me a performance by James McAvoy that just completely took me by surprise. Knowing that he was going to portray up to 30 different personalities and not to not to spoil anything, but he doesn't quite get up to that number. We get to see a performance by one individual over the course of at least seven different characters and distinct characters. Um, I, I, th I think about his performance and it reminds me a lot of seeing actors who play twins of themselves or who play doubles or who play 
uh, alternate versions of themselves and how they react to each other on screen with the split screen technology. I think it's, it's that kind of appreciation that I have for an actor who is able to switch different personalities and different methods of acting, not only between performances in different movies, like we get with um, guys like James Franco or um, I can't remember of, uh, Oh, remind me Lincoln. I'm forgetting now, but Daniel Day Lewis. Thank you. So you have method actors who are able to do that, movie to movie, but James McAvoy does this in one movie. So we see one character in one scene, and then we see a completely distinctly different character in another scene. And when you couple that with the overall story that Shyamalan is trying to tell, it becomes incredibly creepy, incredibly disturbing, and incredibly exciting at the same time. And I I walked away knowing that this was a singular actor, but I got to know a half a dozen different characters in the span of two hours. And that doesn't happen a lot unless you have six distinctly different actors. So to have one person portray that many characters and do so in a successful way and have them distinctly different from each other was just incredible to me. It's one thing. It's what made split memorable for me. Yeah, I would have to agree. It's what made split memorable for me too. And uh, we voted Dennis and the horde as our Seattle villain of the year. Uh, he was so good and and definitely worthy of that. Yeah, McAvoy was phenomenal, and it's and it's something that we not, we have not seen him do as well. Like, I mean, we've seen him do normal acting, and we I, I'm not surprised that he does well. But you just you never you don't get this ever more than once. You get one one type of performance where somebody's going to portray all these different personalities in the same film, and it's it's right. really really good. Mm-hmm. Well, my number two is a, an actress who I am sad to say I left off of my Seattle uh, Film Awards ballot. Uh, unfortunately, she came to my attention. I realized how much I loved her performance a little too late. And that's Anna de Armas uh, of Blade Runner 2049. She plays Joy, who is a hologram, uh, who is in a relationship with Kay, played by Ryan Gosling. And I'm not going to say a ton about her. All I'm going to say is that the first Blade Runner made me care about an Android. Uh, and then this Blade Runner because of her made me care about a hologram. Uh, she is the most emotionally again, anchored character in this entire film. And it's phenomenal how well she is able to pull that off in a very limited number of scenes yet her face is plastered all over this world because she is everything to everyone. But the version of her that we get, um, she makes so many big, important, and moving emotional decisions. And she does so with a lot of nuance. And I just really, really like her performance in this. I uh, put her on my radar as someone to seek out her work that she's done previously and really to look forward to what she's going to do next. Because I think when I, when I go back and I, I try to figure out what it is, what are the main things that made me love Blade Runner 2049 so much? She sticks out at the very top of that list, top one or two things. Uh, and for that alone, I mean, that's my number one film of the year. So she's got to be on this list for me. 
I really enjoyed her performance too. And it was definitely a standout because you didn't expect it. I mean, you see, you see the main characters in the trailers and she comes across as simply just, well, let's be frank, eye candy at first. So to see her performance really outdo that was, um, was very impressive to me too. My number two is uh, Meryl Streep from The Post. This was one that I actually got to see recently. And the thing that stands out to me about Meryl Streep is not that she can do no wrong, because I feel like she can, but there's not a lot of, I say this with all due respect, there's not a lot of movies that I like her in. And it's not because her performance is bad. I think it's just the movies that she's in, I don't really care for. So The Post was one of these movies that I was very intrigued by the subject matter. I'm not as big in in journalism as you are. I know this was something that was really interesting to you. But I remember reading about the situation surrounding the story. And so watching the initial trailers and seeing how the focal point was going to be on her and and Tom Hanks' character, I, I knew that I was going to get a pretty good performance because it's Meryl Streep. So getting a chance to watch it for the first time, I was enamored mostly by the fact that she carries herself as a strong woman. She's not outlandish. She is, she's timid in some cases, but her character grows over the course of the movie and does so in a few specific scenes that I won't go into. But what we see is a character arc that I didn't expect. I knew that she was going to be the lead actress, but when I watch her in this and I watch how she and Tom Hanks respond to each other, how they, how they dialogue with one another, how she approaches him, how her strength as she talks to him as, as, as a boss and as a friend, it makes me understand her character more. And we're talking about a time when a female editor wasn't commonplace. And so she takes this character and she put me in a position where I'm going, okay, she's already in a negative place because she's a female. And so to see her come up and go from one place in her character arc to another, to see her go from timid to strong and to do it in a way that is incredibly believable, it makes me believe that this is who the actual woman was, you know, biopics we've talked in the past about how they don't necessarily get all the factual information straight. And so I absolutely believe that she was Kay and that Kay was Kay Graham was this woman who had to come into her own in this crisis and make the decisions that she did. And, and I think Meryl Streep pulled that off perfectly. Yeah. I, I really liked her performance as well. And I think that you are nailing it with the way that you're explaining it. So when our listeners get a chance to see the post, hopefully it's, I think it's coming out right after this episode goes out. So please do go see this film. Uh, she's very good in it. And like, I'm like you, I mean, I don't, I'm not like a Meryl Streep. I don't know, supporter. I get. I don't, that's the wrong word. I, I'm not a huge fan I don't seek her stuff out. I don't always think she's all that in a bag of chips, but her resume does speak for itself. And she is always fantastic. Whether I think she's the most fantastic in a year or not, doesn't really matter. She does amazing work. 
So my my next one, my third, is also not human, like Anna de Armas in Blade Runner 2049. And that is Andy Serkis in War for the Planet of the Apes. Um, so speaking of caring about those things, I feel like his climactic performance as Caesar, for me, just really cemented him as one of the greatest film characters we've ever had. Because there's nothing to compare him to. I cried my eyes out because of the humanity that he showed while being an ape. And that is something that is not going to happen again, probably. Uh, or if it does, it's going to be a while. Uh, it's the buildup, of course, over three films. So War for the Planet of the Apes of, is the last one. But the arc that he goes on within just this one film is so emotional. It involves so much loss and varying emotions of, uh, you know, taking that desire to, to care for his people, uh, that desire to provide for his family, feeling the rage that we would all feel when we experience loss um, and trying to deal with that and learning how to deal with that, learning how to deal with how that affects his friendships as well. All of those things are embodied incredibly by the way that circus performs as Caesar. So mocap or not, don't really care that it's, that makes him even more amazing. He's a standout and for sure. One of the best acting performances of the year. I would not disagree at all with that. And that's why he made my list as well. He is one that I will in my own heart of hearts champion as best actor uh, for the Oscars. If he gets a nomination, I will be happy. I mean, just throw him a bone uh, or a banana in this case, whatever. Uh, I don't, I, I can't not talk about the fact that the way he emotes under that mocap with his face, the fact that you have to, and you're right, over the course of three films, we really get the kind of grandiose con, you know, climax of who his character is. So that definitely plays into it. But we got to think about this in the first two and in a lot of the third one, we don't get dialogue everything is really centered around his facial expressions and so someone who can emote that way and make me feel something deeply is doing something right and i wish that either there was a category for best actor in a digital role <laughs> or best non-human performance or something like that like you mentioned we may start getting into that with the technology as it is that we, we have a category of best digital performance by an actor or actress. I and mean, we could go, uh, we can go into things like Ava, you know, from, from Ex Machina, you know, that kind of thing. So I'm not going to bank on it, but I think that at the very least he, de he deserves the accolade of a nomination because I think he did a fantastic job. Yeah. I'm, I'm hoping we don't do that. So <laughs> I, I hope that we come around faster than that and realize that this is an acting performance period. And we recognize it as such, because I think if we ever create that category, that's almost like putting someone aside and being like, well, you can be the best in that, but you're not really for real yet. Um, it's, we're not going to really consider that acting. It's going to be its own little thing. And I, I really, I just, he may or may not get nominated for an Oscar this year, but at least people are starting to think that way mm -hmm. in film critic societies around the world and in fans' minds uh, all over. So hopefully we're going to start pushing forward 
towards that direction. All right, for my last one, uh, do you want my 4.1, 4.2, or 4.3 first? You can bring, bring them all. Just bring them all. <laughs> All right, I won't go deep into these. Uh, one, these three, I, I needed to talk a little bit about all of them. I needed to mention them all. Uh, Bria Venate from the Florida Project as well. I, I can just as easily mention Brooklyn Prince, Mooney, the main uh, child character actor. But Bria is the mom, Haley. And this is a woman who was found by the director, Sean Baker, on Instagram. Okay, that's how she became the star of this potential Best film, best picture winning film. That is incredible to me. And she pulls off a performance that I hate so much because I hate the character so much. I despise, I just, there's so much I don't like about this character. But by the end, I'm feeling so much an equal amount of empathy as I am rage. And it's just, it's this incredible bag of emotions that she brings out of me. And so I was shocked at how well she did playing up against Willem Dafoe, holding her own and just giving us this picture of a mom who's down on her luck and lacking a lot of the drive to go out and better her situation. But yet just giving us those hints of someone that really does truly love her child, but having no idea what that means or how to actually love her child because she is still a child herself. So I think she captures all of it perfectly. Um, it's very emotional all the way toward the end of this film and what ultimately happens to her and to their relationship. Uh, and I, I just, I think she's a standout for me. Gary Oldman in the darkest hour I won't say a ton about him because he should be on the best actor shortlist for the Oscars. One of the best performances of the year, absolutely hands down. You're going to hear that all over the place. I'm just going to tell you, yes, it's true. He completely transforms himself to play Winston Churchill uh, physically, but also in his like kind of like circus because he's wearing this, this huge amount of, I think it's like 200 pounds of prosthetics that he wore to be Winston Churchill. So he does a lot with his face. Um, most of the time with a cigar in the mouth. But uh, yeah, his portrayal of Winston Churchill is phenomenal. It's nothing like his Commissioner Gordon, I can tell you that. Uh, Gary Oldman's amazing. Uh, he has such an incredible range. Uh, he's a much better actor than most people realize because he's kind of one of those guys who you don't know by name as much. But you just if you just start looking back through his filmography, you realize, oh, he's that guy. Oh, he's that guy. Oh, he's that guy. Just an amazing, staggering performance. I think this film is one of the absolute best of the year and it's largely because he brings it. Uh, it's high energy film with that really pushes the pace and he manages to keep that going. Last one is Vicky creeps creeps. I don't know how to pronounce her last name. This is an actress I had not been aware of until this year. And she is in Paul Thomas Anderson's upcoming new film, Phantom thread. She plays opposite of Daniel day Lewis. And she's really in a lot of ways, the star of this movie and the thing that just blows me away is I felt like she owned every single scene that she was in, even playing opposite him. So if you can steal the spotlight from Daniel Day-Lewis and at the very least be his equal in every scene you're in with him, that is something unique that not everyone can do. I think when people feel that I see this film finally, they're going to feel the same way. 
Uh, she carries it. There is an arc to this character that changes completely who she is within the, the framework of the film as it goes along. And she reveals these changes very subtly with incredibly nuanced performance. And I think she's just amazing. She's, she's a wonderful, wonderful actress. So had to mention her too. Well, I appreciate your 4.1, two and three. And those are, um, I've only, only seen the one performance, uh, the Florida project. And it was, it was up there. Um, I'm still kind of processing the movie as a whole, but my, my number four was Jessica Chastain from Molly's game just came out. And at the very least, I'm going to give an actor props for being able to handle the dialogue of one Aaron Sorkin. So Molly's game is a biopic uh, written and directed by, by Aaron Sorkin. I think, is this his directorial debut in feature film? Right. Cause he's been a writer for pretty much everything that we've loved. And when I'm watching Jessica Chastain on screen, particularly in moments with her and, and Idris Elba, who plays her, her attorney, there, there are moments where the back and forth performance by both of them, the ping pong match of dialogue is just complete. It's, it's Aaron Sorkin, obviously, but it, it has a rhythm it has a timber has a, just a, a beat to it that makes it enjoyable to listen to. And what she does in her performance is halfway driven by her voiceover work. So most of the movie is, is encompassing her telling you the story as it's playing out so we get that. But there are a couple of moments in the movie where she's not just dialoguing. She has to quite literally connect uh, with some, some deep emotions. There's a, there's a moment in the movie where uh, she's talking with her dad, played by Kevin Costner, that completely just rips me to shreds because it, the dialogue itself was not – the, the, what came about of that situation was not what I was expecting – um, Aaron Sorkin shines as a screenwriter here, but I think what really makes it amazing is how Jessica Chastain as Molly reacts to the dialogue. So when you, when you watch, when you watch Aaron Sorkin's dialogue play out on screen, most of the time you're getting a back and forth thing, but occasionally you'll get a moment where somebody says something and there's a pause. And then the other actor says something else. And so we're getting a chance to kind of breathe a little bit. And in this particular situation with her and Costner, we get a chance to breathe with her because we get a chance to feel the emotions that she's feeling in that moment. And it's done without dialogue. It's done with minimal dialogue. It's done with facial expressions. It's done because throughout the whole movie, we get one type of person. We get a solid I've got it all together. And in this moment, there's a real tender moment between her and him that is just completely sincere to me. So I, I was fascinated with it. I think Jessica Chastain is a, uh, an actress that I'm going to start wanting to see more of the things I've seen her in so far have been, been pretty great. And I was surprised that I loved it so much. That's awesome. I, I think she's outstanding as well. She is an absolute powerhouse. And she's played several characters like this. Um, Zero Dark Thirty comes to mind. 
Miss Sloan from last year. I recently caught up with that. It's almost the same character as Molly in a lot of ways. Um, and I, I think she's, I think she's, I mean, she, she carries this film. She is this film as well. So, I mean, gosh, it's named after her characters. So I mean, you would, you would expect that, but yeah, she, she is amazing. I love her to death. Uh, okay. So I have less honorable mentions as we go along. That's good. Moving on to the film that most exceeded our expectations. Patrick, <laughs> do you want to go first? I'll let you. Okay. So. I have one written down and I saw something today that might've changed it, but I'm going to talk about real quickly is because I saw both of these films today because I purchased the first one on this list and rewatched it this morning. And that is my little pony, the movie. I put this here because I saw this with my daughter who is a major pony lover. I expected to enjoy the experience because I was with her, but I did not expect to enjoy this movie. I thought it was going to be awful thought it was going to be one of those one and a half, two star at best animated films that I had to just sit through and groan and roll my eyes. And the only enjoyment I would get is because she was loving it. Boy, was I wrong, Patrick. I loved this movie. Um, I've joked a lot about how I'm a brony now. I've watched some of the series. I'm totally okay with that. It's colorful. It's got this goofy world, but it has a really deep lore to it. Um, and I, I mean, it is a beautiful animation style. It's kind of different than anything that I've seen recently. And for that alone, it stood out. But this, this whole series and this, this, this world of these ponies is based on friendship in a big way and friendship matters. And it manages to succeed in telling a pretty familiar story, but it uses really incredible music and this, eclectic cast of characters that are ponies. So I wasn't prepared to come out of the theater thinking it was fantastic, but I did. I loved it. And whatever, I don't care. Come at me, bro. Um, <laughs> I'll take it. Uh, the other one I will quickly say is Jumanji. Welcome to the J- jungle. I saw that this afternoon. We briefly had talked about putting this on the podcast schedule uh, way back when, when we were making it. And I was like, no, this looks terrible. I like the original film, uh, you know, decent amount, but it's it feels like it's 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 lessened over time. Even though I'm a board gamer at heart, I thought that everything about this film spelled disaster. Changing it to a video game instead of a board game, dude, they got everything right. Okay, this is a hilarious movie with surprising emotional depth. Characters are great. It's not too raunchy. It's it's awesome. I loved it. I thought I thought it was great. I would go see it again. I'm definitely going to own it. Already have decided that. It's one of the surprises for me of the year because I I really thought it was going to be just another comedy bomb that Aaron doesn't like. But for me, it was probably my favorite comedy of the year, to be honest. That's awesome. And uh and I'm glad that that Jumanji gave gave you at least a thumb and a half of of good positive vibes there because I uh I saw the trailers and I was like, this is going to be a lot of fun. And uh, I'm, I'm having it seen it, but that's what I've heard from everybody that I've talked to is that it's just a ton of fun. So good stuff, man. Now I'm going to bury the lead here because we're going to be talking about this in a couple of days, but the greatest showman is a movie that I had high expectations for and it vastly exceeded them. It was a movie that it was what I wanted and more. It's a movie that, 
without giving too much away, because I know I want to talk more about it on the, the, uh, the podcast in a, in a couple of days, I just wanted more than anything for this thing to succeed at being what it was. And it did just that for me. I got emotional, which I didn't expect from a musical. I walked out wanting to listen to the soundtrack, which I kind of expected from a musical. But the thing that puts a movie over the top for me is when I leave the theater or when I finish watching it and I immediately want to go back and watch it again. Sing Street did this for me last year and The Greatest Showman did this for me this year. I'm I'm even just thinking about it right now. I've got the songs in my head. The performances were surprisingly just fresh. They didn't feel trite to me. They felt like I didn't I didn't get a lot of cheese from it. I mean, you expect that from a mu- a musical that's going to be so kind of bombastic and full of energy. And there were maybe a couple of moments of that. But what I wanted and what I got were vastly different from a positive standpoint. I wanted great and I got spectacular. So yeah, for me the greatest showman was was where it was at for me. That's fantastic. I'm I'm so glad. I could I could probably have thrown Blade Runner 2049 in there as well based on almost the exact same things that you just said only, you know, transplanting my own expectations. Um it's it's awesome to me that we both got that experience. We both had a movie that we loved so much. We were so or we had high 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 expectations for and they both paid off. I'm just so glad. I I hope that people all over uh, that are listening to this got to have a similar experience with a film in 2017. And I hope they get to every year because it feels amazing when that happens. So what about, what about your biggest disappointment? Uh, how, where did that fall? Well, there were two and they were for different reasons. The first was the circle. I hadn't read the, the book that it was based on, but I wanted a lot more than I got. I felt like I got a truncated version of what could potentially be a really great story. There were moments in the movie that I thought were pretty outstanding, but the the whole was not greater than the sum of its parts. It was just kind of, here's a great moment, and here's a cool moment, and here's a neat moment. And by the end of the movie, what I got was sort of a jagged story put together. It wasn't bad, but it was one that I know you and I, when we talked about it on the show, it was really hard to find connecting points, find things to really bring about. And, and that's fine. I mean, not every movie is going to make us uh, ecstatic, but I looked at that and I went, man, this could have been a lot more. It did make me want to read the book. And eventually I'm going to put that in my hands and, and take a look at it. But I felt like it was just sort of a abbreviated version of something that could have been a lot more. The other movie that stood out to me, and it wasn't because it was a bad movie by any means, it was a really great movie. Um, but the Florida project for me, left me with a weird feeling. I felt like I got a couple of different vibes from it. And I think it was intentional, but the intentionality didn't resonate with me. And I know that there've been a lot of discussions about how the movie progresses. I love the documentary style that it, that it takes, but there there's a there's a moment in the film that pulls me out of it enough and it makes me wonder what just happened and it 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 did it in a way 
that kind of derailed my emotional connection to it. Like I understood and understand and appreciate what this movie is trying to accomplish. And it's very clear to me what it is and the, the way it resonates with me and understanding this culture that exists on the outskirts of (laughs) the Disney resort lifestyle is very apparent. And it's very, very, um, very direct and very deliberate. And I picked up on that, but there's just one particular moment where I'm like, wait, did what, what just, what just happened? And it kind of left me with a sour taste in my mouth. It doesn't take away from the fact of the movie's greatness, but in order for something to be really great for me, it needs to feel complete. And when that moment happened, it felt incomplete. It felt edited. It felt like it was not um, thought through. I understand it after reading articles and whatnot and having discussions with you. And again, I can appreciate it, but what it tried to do and how it connected with me was really kind of a miss, but, but overall the movie's great. It just, um, what I, what I was getting from it and then what I eventually got, um, in this moment was just kind of like, okay, I guess that's okay then. Well, I'm hoping that we get to talk about that one properly, uh, with, some full podcast spoilers because <laughs> there's a lot that I would love to continue talking about and saying about the Florida project. And I'd like to dive into what it is that was the blockade for you and see if okay. we can have that conversation. So hopefully we can do that before maybe around Oscar season or something. We'll see what comes up. Um, my biggest disappointment. Hey, we had a match. It's a episode. We did episode 55 on this movie and that's the circle. Yeah. It's not often that we cover something on the podcast that we don't like. It's very, very rare. Uh, because, Suicide Squad. Excuse me. Uh, Suicide Squad. Yeah, this is another good example of one that we were both pretty sour on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the circle just bombed for us both, and we both had pretty high expectations. It was it was an anticipated film for us as well. Um, like you said, for you, actors involved and, and just general idea of the premise. For me, I'd read the book, and I think the book is amazing. Uh, but as an adaptation, this sucked frankly it stripped almost all of the relationship building away and unfortunately for me that just means that the stakes just don't matter as much in the end and it took a vital character and it destroyed the mystery of his existence right off the bat so there was really no reason for him to be there they wasted tom hanks in my opinion and they just kind of used him as a MacGuffin. um Slightly changed the ending as well, and I feel like it was just it just ended up very unsatisfying to me in the end. Um, it was a hot mess, and I was list very very disappointed. I think it's a fantastic story that really does bring up important things that we can consider about where the world is heading with regards to technological advancement. But I think that this adaptation as a movie does a terrible job of conveying that. So. I am with you 100% that <laughs> the circle was bad, bad, bad and uh, very disappointing because I wanted it to be so much better. The soundtrack uh, is good though. Uh, yeah, the soundtrack is not bad at all. Very social networky. Mm-hmm. Um, my other ones were just a couple blockbusters. Transformers The Last Night uh, stood out. Uh, I wanted more for that. I've, I've enjoyed the rest of the films. This one I, I literally could not get through. 
uh, which is, I just, I can't, I don't even know when that's happened before this movie uh, previously. And then the mummy, I had high hopes for, for the mummy, not because I expected it to be great, but I expected it to be serviceable. And I, I would, would have loved to see the universal monster universe take off and be something compelling that could feature multiple different films with different characters. And unfortunately this just, there's, this didn't get it. This did not get it done. It just didn't do it. Uh, So Mm -hmm. bombs, bombs all around. Okay. Next category, favorite episodes that we recorded this year. This is fun. (laughs) I have a tie of like a 15 episodes. Okay. (laughs) So, I mean, I know you're shocked because I don't break any rules during this at all. No, not at all. I think for me, there's, there's two episodes I'm going to mention that were just you and I, and those were the princess bride and 12 angry men. Both of those episodes were just amazing. And for different reasons, the princess bride, we didn't know how it was going to go. And it was one of those first times where we were covering something that was an all time high, high favorite for both of us. Um, at least something other than a Nolan movie. And there's just it, that that episode could have devolved into nothing but a quotathon, and yet I felt like we had a lot of back and forth that came up with some great things to talk about. We got to talk a lot about the history of it and the history of some of the actors and the making of the film, and I just I just thoroughly enjoyed that conversation. I remember coming away from it on such a high. Um, sometimes that happens, and so it it stuck out in my mind. That was episode eighty on the Princess Bride. Uh, 12 Angry Men was episode 73 and just the depth that we were able to discuss about this film and its relevance today uh, was really, I felt like it was really important and one of our best episodes as far as something that people could listen to and actually maybe impact the way that they think and go about their daily lives, honestly. And so that was a big deal for me. Uh, The other ones were all guest appearances and that was, Baby Driver, episode 65, not because I like the movie at all, but because we were recording live in a Starbucks, face-to-face, you and me on vacation, with Chad Hopkins of Cinescope Podcast, one of our buddies. So that was just such a cool experience. I loved every second of that, despite the movie. I mean, I wish I almost wish we would have like a movie that we loved more to have talked about, so we could go back and you know, have that historically, but whatever. It doesn't matter. It was an awesome time despite the grinders going off in the background every once in a while. Uh, Interstellar, episode 44, the beginning of the year with Andrew Dice of Screen Rant. Oh, man. Just uh, the movie means so much to us both, and I was absolutely pleased with how it turned out. Um, I thought it was an amazing conversation, and Andrew brings so much to the table when we get to talk to him. And it was the only thing we've done, or was at the time, it was the only thing we'd done with him that wasn't superhero related. And so that was cool to get to have his opinions and perspectives on some sci-fi. And then the last one I'm going to mention is Blade Runner, which was episode 78 with James Harleman. It's the first time we got to podcast with James, who was a big inspiration for for me and I know for you as well in just the way that we approach watching movies. Um, getting to have him come on to talk about his favorite movie of all time and a movie that's in my top five of all time. It was, it was a little bit daunting 
because when you cover something like that, you want to do it justice and you're, you don't want to miss anything and you don't want to misspeak. And I just really enjoyed getting to hear his thoughts on that film and the way it even provoked new ways of thinking for me about a movie that I've seen dozens of times was awesome. And, um, and yours as well. It was neat to be able to have your reactions to that movie. Cause it was the first time I got to hear them. It's the first time you'd seen it. And so that was really cool. And so all of those, man, Stood out. My favorite, I know one more. I, I'm so sorry. My mini-sode, I have a favorite mini-sode too, and that's on Get Out. It was mini-sode 15. And I did that with uh, Blake Collier of the Body and the Blood podcast. It's a horror podcast uh, that does some film and theology type stuff. This one was really important to me. I came out of Get Out blown away uh, by what I saw and really emotionally and socially affected by what it was. And we got to go into depth into some of the history that kind of revolves around Jordan Peele's ideas for the story here and why this matters. Uh, and so that's an episode I would point everyone to absolutely again, kind of like 12 angry men, something that's so relevant that it could impact the way that you think about things. And I think it could do that in a good way. So all of those stood out to me the most. And I mean, we did, gosh, 60, 70 episodes this year. So, I, you know, six or seven feels fair. <laughs> 10%, right? I I have three. And I'm glad you had more than one. I feel better. <laughs> and each one stands out for different reasons, partly related to the movie, but more so related to the people. And I'm going to start with, the one that's was with me, me and you, and it was it was different because it was not a movie, but it was actually a, a TV series. It was Thirteen Reasons Why. This was the first time that I think I led the discussion, and I'll be a little candid inside baseball here that says you know you you lead the discussion up to that point. You were leading discussions for pretty much everything, and I was very comfortable with that. But Thirteen Reasons Why, I began to watch it, and and the way it affected me. I felt like we needed to talk about it. Not because we had all the answers because we clearly did not. And we clearly still do not, but because it felt relevant at the time. And I think still does. And because it really fits into the parameters of what feeling film is about. It's like, if, if every movie makes us feel something, then every, well, at least this TV show made us feel something pretty incredible. For me, it was it was challenging because we were dealing with very sensitive subject matter, the idea of suicide and how to how to approach talking about it and how to separate the the actual um, issue with the subject matter of the television show. And I remember walking away from that going, I feel like we at least in part did it justice in terms of giving it giving people a reason to watch it beyond just, Hey, it's entertaining. Hey, it's compelling. I, I still have not watched it again and probably won't because I feel like it's that kind of a TV series. I feel like it has this idea of watch it once and discuss it because it leaves you thinking about things that matter. And the fact that it was so visceral for me personally, um, I was glad that we got a chance to talk about it. 
the uh, the second one you mentioned it was Baby Driver with Chad, and I think we both walked um, all three of us walked away enjoying it, not loving it. Um, it almost made the cut for my biggest disappointment, but it wasn't a disappointment to me. I enjoyed it. I eventually actually want to watch it again. And but like you mentioned, it was really that chance for you and me to finally like <laughs> do something together, like in the same room, and then have Chad come on. And come alongside us and all of us meet at a theater, watch this movie, and then immediately just talk about it. I almost didn't care what we said on the show. I was just glad that the three of us were sitting around just talking about movies. because Having coffee. What, I know. Yeah. I, I felt the same way. That's what, that's what podcasting essentially is. It's just done over a digital space. I've had a chance to, to be on uh, his show Cinescope several times. And it's because of that relationship and, of course, my relationship with you that allowed us the chance to say, Hey, we can make this happen. And to me, that's, that's money in the bank when it comes to podcast communities is when you get a chance to actually meet folks. I'm looking forward to the chance to, to meet some of our contributors, Don and Jeremy at some point, uh, some of our other podcast friends like Francisco and Paul over at retro rewind. And that leads into my, my third one, which is uh, Mr. Mom. This was one that actually, uh, it's the first episode that I think you were not a part of, like that I was actually on the discussion and you were like, I'm going to bow out of this one. If you guys really want to cover this, it's, I think it's the only episode it is yeah. ever not been on still. Yeah, it, it is. And, and you guys did a bang up job. So well, appreciate that. But having Don and Jeremy on what made this episode really memorable for me was the fact that we had a chance to really just kind of organically not just talk about the movie, but talk about our roles as dads. I mean, Jeremy just had what his 12th kid, I think um, that he delivered like on his own without any support from anybody in a van down by the river. I think that's where the story is going at this point. Uh, Don's got a couple of kids. And so it was really, really cool to talk with two other dads and how they do life as fathers and how, a movie like Mr. Mom resonates with them and how it has relevancy. Uh, it's, it, it's a, it's a, it was an episode that I felt like I was getting to know these guys as people, not just as contributors. It was the first time I felt like I, I got to talk to them as friends and it, it really kind of enhanced my relationship with them. So those three episodes in particular stood out to me as probably my favorites. Well, those are all great as are, Basically, all of our episodes, it's really hard to choose. It's like choosing between your favorite children in a lot of ways, you know, because there's so many that we love. But if you're (laughs) a new listener and this is the first time you're listening to us, uh, then by all means, you know, use this list as something to direct you. These are some of the ones that we're the most proud of. And maybe you should start there or pick your favorite. Watch the movies because. Oh, yeah. Always watch the movies because while this is very much spoiler free, the film discussions that we have are absolutely not. They are all full spoilers. Okay, Patrick. Off we go. The last two categories. First of this is our feeling five. These are the movies that we most connected with emotionally across the year. Not necessarily our one through five on our top ten list, but just something about them that really stood out to us. And... um. I have more than five, but we'll get there. Uh, you know, I you know I found a way to creatively do this, though. Feeling 5,000. <laughs> Feeling five for genre, actually, is the way I was <laughs> 25 movies. 
Listen, I love movies. That's why I do this job. And I think that that comes through. So I will go first. And before you go, are these ranked for you? I did not rank them. Okay, good deal. Because I didn't rank mine either. Uh, And if I say one that's on your list or vice versa, let's let's do Serpentine. How about that? Uh, If I say one that's on your list or you say one that's on my list, you can just go ahead and we'll we'll talk about that one together uh, at the time. Sounds good to me. Okay, so number one, uh, let's just go ahead and get this out of the way, <laughs> and that is the animated film uh, from Makoto Shinkai, Your Name. We recently did an episode on this film, a mini-sode. This has been my number one film for almost all of 2017. From the moment that I saw it the first time, I knew this was going to be in my top 100. This is that kind of powerful movie for me. It was my La La Land experience of this year. Uh, up until Blade Runner 2049 kind of stole that spot and and ultimately carved out almost like a tie. <laughs> I hate ties, but I still adore this movie, Your Name. It's full of mystery. The story is about the power of what a name means um, and really what it, what it is to know someone something that you and I gravitate toward that idea and how it's depicted in films. And this one is amazing at doing that. Um, it's a love story. It's a story of friendship. It's a story of fate. I just sit down and watch this movie and I slip away into it. Um, it's, it's somewhere that I care deeply about these characters. I absolutely want the best for them. Um, and I think about them when I'm not watching the film. Uh, I think about concepts from this movie that are put forth when I'm not think- watching the film. And so it's something that, uh, affects me all the time and, and has ever since I've seen it. And it's just, it's, it's my favorite animated movie of all time at this point. I really can say that. Uh, and so yeah, there it is. Your name was probably the most, if, if I was going to rank them, it would probably be number one. It was my most emotional experience of the year. Well, rightly so, man. It was, it was definitely up there for me too. It made the list. And I think more than anything, it got me thinking about how good anime actually is because I'm not a fan. And I say I'm not a can fan. Can be, can be. Can be, right. <laughs> not and all. I mentioned this on the mini so that not being a fan doesn't mean that I hate anime. It's just not the thing that I gravitate towards like Westerns. I don't gravitate towards those unless prompted. And typically my Western or anime experience is good. Uh, you can't really go wrong with, with a movie like your name because it's so beautifully animated. The story is compelling, but much like a Miyazaki movie. I mean, if you're going to give somebody a chance to get into anime, Miyazaki is at least was the the standard. Shinkai is probably going to be who I recommend in terms of good quality anime. And again, that's not detrimental to other animators. This one just far exceeds what I think incredible anime is because of the fact that it's not just beautifully done, but it's got that compelling story. It's got a fantastic soundtrack. I mean, it's a complete movie, man. It's not something that you're like, yeah, that was good, but the rest of it was... I mean, this is like complete and it's worthy it's you know going back to andy circus being nominated for best actor even though he was in mocap this should be nominated for some kind of best picture oscar type thing because of the fact that it's a good complete film i don't think it'll get that kind of love because 
one, I think it's, you know, it's anime Two, it's animated. And so there's a lot going against it. So I don't expect it by any means to get a nomination, but I'm saying it has the credentials to be in that kind of, in that kind of category. What's your second one? Dunkirk stood out to me as one that was very emotionally uh, evocative. It was a, a movie that made me feel isolated with these characters. I love that Christopher Nolan calls it a, um, he doesn't call it a war story. He calls it a, uh, was it a rescue? Uh, I don't remember how he described it, but it was a, it, it was a film about isolation and about, um, the, it was a survival movie about the struggle to survive. And we get these pockets of, of stories. We get three distinct stories happening not simultaneously, but to us, we're getting this, we're digesting these three stories all at once. And all of them have that central theme of isolation and survival. And in those moments, I felt constricted. I felt compact with these soldiers as they were hunkered down in various places. And I felt like I was in chaos with them. And movies don't do that to me. There, there are a lot of like war movies in particular they don't try to tell that story. They give us a narrative. This happened. And then this happened. Here's some dialogue and this happened and this happened. Nolan gave us an experience. He didn't give us a story. And I think that it's what merits watching this a second or third or fourth time with the understanding that that's what you're getting. And I think when you get that, it elevates the movie on a different level. So for me, the emotional takeaway from it was initially one of like, okay, what did I just experience? I feel, I feel weird. I feel like I lost something. And I think that's what he wanted me to feel like I was in the moment and now I'm not, and I'm in the moment and now I'm not. And it's just this kind of jagged feeling that creates that tension. Um, and I won't say I love that feeling, but I definitely appreciated it for my movie going experience. So Dunkirk definitely stands out for me, man. What a great pick. I, you know, I didn't even have it listed and it's absolutely worthy of being on that list. This, this is a tough thing because this is what we do is we find emotional connections in every film that we see. So in theory, we could, put every single film on this list in, in many ways it's, it makes it tough, but um, yeah, gosh, what a, what an incredible experience watching that one was. I'm going to say for my number two, um, uh, a movie by director, Terrence Malick a movie called song to song. This was almost uh, one of my biggest surprises of the, or on my list for biggest surprise of the year, because I generally don't like Terrence Malick films. I've only enjoyed a couple of them until recently started to kind of feel that turning a little bit uh, as I, as I dive into his stuff. But this movie is, uh, has actors that I love Ryan Gosling, Rooney Mara, um, Michael Fassbender, Natalie Portman. The cast is amazing. And it's kind of got this like romantic uh, three way kind of issue going on. Uh, Gosling's an aspiring or a musician and uh, Rudy Mara is an aspiring musician and she hooks up with him uh, produced by Michael Fassbender, but then he kind of wants to be involved with her and it's just gets, it gets messy, but it's, it's all done in that Terrence Malick way. Okay. And this film is driven by music. It's about the Austin music scene. Uh, that's the backdrop. 
And the music is amazing. I mean, we start with orchestral on the soundtrack and we get all kinds of different genres and styles throughout. And they all seem to fit perfectly. The thing about this one was that Malik really, it just seems more structured narratively than his work has been in the past. And instead of just living with characters that are awful people um, and not really seeing any change in them, what really works for me in this movie is that it's final 10 to 20 minutes. It comes together and it pays off that journey that they go through by offering hope. Um, People learn forgiveness. They learn mercy. These are things that I I have not seen in Malik's work before. Um, Love, the idea of what love really is, becomes understood. The language that this film uses at this time, it even even seems to evoke um, the well-known biblical parable of the prodigal son. And I feel like it could, the things that happen could almost symbolize a return to faith after being a wayward soul as they could um, returning to a devotion to a true love. So it had multiple meanings for me. Um, It's this idea of redemption and ultimately this state of happiness that we endlessly search for can actually be achieved um, it's just not necessarily going to look like what we thought it might. And so this one touched me and moved me in a big, 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 big way. I watched it the first time. I was just so moved by it that I actually started it over instantaneously after start after it ended. And that just was shocking. Like, I don't do that ever. Um, so that was, that was one for me. Would you say that this movie, as a Terrence Malick movie that can be very, you know, Terrence can be very divisive would you say this is a good entry point into his films or maybe a good digestible movie in terms i absolutely of- think it's digestible and more so than most of his movies yeah uh, i don't i don't know that i would use the word entry point because i don't know that there's anything else to go for go to from here sure. that is like this because he just doesn't do this stuff it's a little bit more i mean the edits are fast we're talking snippets of life that are just you know flashing and and moving by and boom, we stop and we have some dialogue and you really got to pay attention. But I, I felt that I was able to follow the story and what was happening in a way that I'm not normally, normally I'm confused pretty quickly and I'm like, where did we get, how did we get here? But this one felt, even though they're quick snippets that I could follow it. Cool. Yeah. Highly recommend it. Okay. Um, Serpentine. Serpentine. Number three. So, um, War for the Planet of the Apes, we, we talked about it a little bit earlier, but as far as epics go, this is just an incredible film. Kind of closes out a trilogy that is going to stand as one of the best I've ever seen. Uh, it's a trilogy that did the rare thing of getting better, better, better with mm. each film. It started off really good and got better and then got great. And so I was not expecting a two and a half hour biblical historical cinematic referenced epic tale but that's what we got uh and the arc that caesar goes on i talked about a little bit earlier just as a leader delivering his people and being told ultimately at the end of the film that you know it's okay to let go and let someone else take up the reins of the story of their of their lives um there's a line in this film where his best friend says, son, your son's going to know who was his father um, and what Caesar 
did for us. And it just wrecked me. I, I think it might have been the hardest I've cried in the theater all year. Mm-hmm. I just, I couldn't stop myself. I, I was, I mean, just thinking about it is, is hard. So for me to feel that way about an ape, an animated ape or digitalized ape is speaks to the storytelling ability of Matt Reeves in this film. And it moved me from beginning to end the whole, the whole way through everything about it. Yeah, I completely agree. It was, it made my list too of the, of the feeling five. And as I mentioned before, I think it takes the other two movies to really appreciate the third. There are a couple of great moments between uh, Caesar and Woody Harrelson's character that are pretty, pretty monumental emotionally because they round out Harrelson's character. We talk about that a lot on the show and it really, it it elevates him as an actor for me because up till then I've only seen him in certain typecasted roles and I didn't expect the character arc that I got from him. But overall seeing Caesar's arc come to a close in, in this film, I felt like, there's something about there's something emotionally satisfying about closure. And you mentioned this being a trilogy that gets better and better and better. And that's, that's no lie. I would, I would put this competitively against some of the popular trilogies that are out there. The, the back to the futures and the Indiana Joneses and the original star Wars, as, as far as being for sure, my favorite, but up there with the best, because we don't get that a lot. We always get, either a really great entry point and kind of a lackluster second and then a decent third to kind of finish it out. But this felt very organic in terms of how it grew. And War was a great finish. It finished strong. Um, I definitely connected to the biblical, historical metaphors and the, 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 tale, the, the symbols that were being used in this. And it it was incredibly satisfying, sad and hard to watch sometimes, but incredibly satisfying. And when you can do that with digitized apes, you're doing <laughs> something right. Because I know. That's it just, it speaks to, yeah. it speaks to the strength of storytelling equally as much as the acting that takes place. Yeah. Agreed. All right. So my fourth one was kind of a surprise uh, because it's not necessarily one of my favorite films of the year. And we talked about finishing strong. And for me, watching Logan uh, was one that I, it surprised me where I connected with it the most, because obviously it's no, it, it, it's no secret that I'm a Hugh Jackman fan. And I admit that some of my influence comes from that, but Logan as a film, I think does what X-Men in 2000 didn't expect it to do. Uh, my wife and I actually recently watched X-Men. We wanted to see young Hugh Jackman, you know, where he started because X-Men was really his breakout role to see that. And we did an episode kind of a, was it a double episode with the guys over at uh, retro rewind? Where it we was. did X, X-Men with them. And then we followed it up with, with Logan. What surprised me was seeing the seriousness taken with this character. Um, I've read the, the 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 miniseries that this movie was loosely based on a very 
I use that loosely, very loosely. <laughs> but there are moments in the movie, particularly near the end, where we are capturing the humanity of Logan. And I think the movie is aptly named. It's not called Wolverine. It's about the man beyond the superhero. I've mentioned this before. Uh, I mentioned it on our Justice League episode, how I love the fact that DC uses an equal amount of of importance for the alter egos as much as the superheroes. So Clark Kent matters just as much as Superman and Bruce Wayne matters just as much as Batman. This is a movie where I feel like Fox got it right in saying Logan matters just as much as the Wolverine. And this was a story about Logan. This was a story about him and finishing. I don't know if his arc, you could say, finished strong. But for me, I felt like just like war, it was a satisfying finish to his character. I don't want to see anybody else play him because I feel like he's owned this role. That's probably going to happen because the nature of the movies. And I'm... Um, sadly okay with that <laughs> but I think when you have a character like Wolverine embodied by the same guy for 16 years 17 years to me Logan was a great exclamation point to the lifespan of this character and Hugh Jackman's a fantastic actor so I'm glad that we got to see that me too me too I I enjoyed that aspect of the film as well. Um, and that's all I'm going to say about that. You can go listen to that episode if you want to know my full thoughts on Logan or Patrick's. Okay, so what are we on for? Number four. So for me, this one, this is a contested spot. All of these are so contested. I chose Last Flag Flying. And the reason that I chose this movie is because it kind of came out of nowhere for me. Uh, I wasn't even expecting to see it. And after it came out, I didn't, I didn't screen it. Uh, just kind of, it's like, eh, didn't really have any interest to be honest. It was a Richard Linkletter film. And even though I, I mean, some of Richard Linkletter's dramatic work, the before, the before trilogy are, are among my favorite movies of all time. Um, but conversely, I do not enjoy his comedic work at all. And I was under the impression that this movie not that it was comedic, but that it was a successor film to an old movie called The Last Detail, which I had not seen. So I thought, well, it's a sequel. I can't see it. Later on, someone set me straight and said, eh, not, not really directly. It's more like a spiritual successor uh, in some ways to that movie. And so I gave this one a shot, kind of without any expectations around it. Didn't really even know much about the story. The story centers around Steve Carell. Uh, he's, a, he's, he's on his way home um, to bury his son. His son has, has been a, a Marine, I believe, in, in the war and has died. And he's coming to pick him up and take him to be buried. And on the, in the, along the way, he needs support. And so he stops and asks his two old buddies from his war days when he was in the, in the Corps um, to come with him and they they do brian cranston uh plays just this absolute crotchety kind of just rough around the edges like never never grew out of that military demeanor um and the other character 
who I cannot remember the actor's name at this moment, so I'm not going to guess. Uh, but it's, <laughs> he uh, he plays a preacher, and he has uh, become uh, a minister in his days post-war. And so he holds a lot of uh, new values uh, that don't necessarily match up with the way that these three guys acted when they were together. And it's a road trip movie, essentially. It's a very grief-stricken, painful, dramatic road trip movie. And, uh, you know, the performances in this are amazing. Carell's dramatic work here, he's almost stoic the whole film with this just hidden sheen of of grief that's not coming through. Um, Cranston also, you know, just always cracking jokes, always trying to be rude to to find a way to break that silence. He, he feels that that's his role. This is it's an amazing film to me. I, I was I was really floored by it. It's a, an incredible picture of what it's like to have grief and to deal with unconventional friendships, but that really means something. And it connected with me extra deep because I have served in a role of Navy Keiko, which is a casualty controls officer. So that's the person that actually goes to the family and says, I have to inform you that your child has died. And so having been in this situation, having been at a funeral where I've handed the flag from a casket um, of a passed away service member to a spouse, to a mother, I was in just shambles watching this play out on screen. Linkletter takes so much care in handling it. The dialogue is typical Linkletter perfection. Um, so it's just a wonderful, wonderful movie, even though it's really, really hard to watch. Very cool. I mean, not cool that it's hard to watch, but the fact that you can connect with something like that is, uh, is pretty fantastic. Yeah, so I want you to see it eventually. I know you, I know you haven't yet, but I, I think that you should so that I can find out what you think about it. Yeah, um, I'll write it down and put it on, on my list. Uh, is it streaming anywhere or is it? I don't think it is yet. Okay. I would imagine it probably will be before too long, though. Okay, I'll put it on the on the streaming watch. I think it's actually in the list of those four that recently got leaked online. <laughs> Not that I'm encouraging anybody to go take part in that. <laughs> uh, strike that from the record. Okay. My number five, actually quick honorable mentions to, to movies that aren't going to be showing up. That's Blade Runner 2049, uh, Dunkirk, The Greatest Showman. I'm leaving it off because we're about to talk about it in depth, and I figure my feelings will come out there. Um, could have been there. The Florida Project, major, major movie that really impacted me deeply about empathy. But again, I've talked about it several times on this uh, podcast already. So for my number five, don't hate me, Patrick. Don't hate me. I don't think you can hate me because of what this is, but it's documentaries. Okay. My number five is documentaries in general. That's because there are four that really impacted me this year. And normally I don't have that sort of response to documentaries, but I felt like this was such a strong year for them. And it's something that my attention has been heightened to because of you and your love for them. I've actually become a much bigger fan of them. And so these, I'll, I'll try not to take too long on them. Number one of that list is Faces Places. Uh, this is a documentary that has a photographer named JR in France and Agnes Varda, a famous French auteur director. And basically, JR has this vehicle, this van 
and you step inside it, it takes your picture and it looks like a camera on the outside and it literally spits out a giant size Polaroid picture of you in what you were doing. They travel around the country filming them taking this van across the countryside of France, all over the place, meeting people, learning who they are, and putting up giant pictures of them in their towns. That's essentially what the movie is about. Sounds kind of simple, right? But it is very emotional. It It's one of the best, like, hour and a half joyful experiences that I had all year. I, I smiled from end to end, ear to ear, the whole end to end of the film. It, it was incredible. I really, really loved it renewed a lot of faith honestly that i have in people just seeing them be i don't know so excited about having their picture up on their own barn it's it's wild uh it's definitely something i recommend the work is another documentary that i saw this year um this one is about a a special prison program where a group of inmates is linked up with some civilians from the outside world that volunteer And they go through this like three or four day deep, intense therapy session where the people from the outside are bringing their own baggage and their own emotions to the table. The people from the inside are trying to work through why they're in prison in the first place. And this is visceral and raw, man. It is, oh, it is tough. Um, Brought out a lot of tears watching these people cry and watching these people break down and work through this experience. Uh, this is a program that I guess has a pretty high success rate. Those that complete it, they get out. If you go through it successfully, you can get out on early parole and get a reduced sentence out of this. And they've never had a problem with that. It's always been successful. And, but watching them go through this is amazing. Uh, it's, it's just something you'll never see anything quite like it. That's the work. LA 92 and city of ghosts are the other two. LA-92 has no narration. It is simply cut together audio and video clips of the riots in LA in 1992, the race riots. Shows multiple perspectives. It's a very unbiased look. And that one connected with me deeply because that was something that you and I actually lived through. We were old enough to kind of, it was the start of our our teenage years and we were like, or late in our teenage years. And we were like, what's going on? You know, like we could kind of grasp some of that. Um, and so seeing it this way, you know, with not all one-sided, um, rewatching those classic clips of Rodney King's beating and, oh gosh, what was his name? The guy that was pulled out of his, his big 18 wheeler and beaten almost to death and seeing how it affected the, the Asians in the districts, um, and how their, their lives were changed. It was just very, very powerful documentary for me and city of ghosts, uh, covers a group that is opposing ISIS in Syria, uh, an underground group, and oh, heartbreaking stuff. Just absolute heartbreaking. I mean, it, it's very, again, with the visceral and raw stuff, I mean, we see executions, uh, and we see these people in this group of of freedom, you know, they're trying to get information out to help people know how to get out of there, to get, to get, uh, their city back and to try and fight against ISIS and they lose, they lose friends, they lose family members. It's, it doesn't always go well, but seeing ground level, what ISIS has done is also incredibly um, 
impactful, I guess, for me this year. And that was, that was a really hard watch. So those four docs I, I needed to mention. Well, I fully endorse any documentary that you're going to put in a ranking of any kind. And in this case, four is perfectly justified. All, I mean, all four of those sound um, as if they're going to get you connected and documentaries. They're, they're meant to do that. It's weird. Movies in, in the theater, you know, they tell stories to get us to connect with them emotionally. Documentaries have that same challenge. If, even if we don't realize it, that unless you're watching, I guess maybe a, a Ken Burns documentary where you're just getting information. Most of our modern docs are trying to evoke some kind of connection and some kind of emotion to them. And I'm glad to hear that those four did that for you. Um, my honorable mentions before I get to my last one, uh, the greatest showman, you'll hear me talk about that potentially on the, uh, on the episode uh, coming up. Brigsby bear, which is a surprise. Uh, Ooh, good choice. Yeah. Jeremy mentioned that to me and um, I really enjoyed it connected with the main character and it was just a lot of fun. It, it, it's one of those things where we talk about connecting emotionally. We tend to lean more towards the dramatic, but this was one where I felt happy connecting with the, with the characters and uh, particularly the main character and going on his journey with him. I loved being a part of that world. Uh, and the greatest showman had that effect in, in another instant from a musical standpoint, but my fifth one, much like you is kind of a cheat. Uh, I'm going to go back to 13 reasons why. And I want to say that Hannah Baker, the, the girl that played Hannah Baker, the main character, Catherine Langford, she plays the main character in this. I remember each episode, which was defined as it was titled as one of the tape because it's uh, the, the whole series centers around our main character, Hannah Baker, crafting these 13 audio tapes that lead up to her eventual uh, suicide and watching each episode. I was, I remember clearly watching a lot of these just in my office late at night. It was typically after we finished recording an episode and remember two things, one, not wanting to stop watching and two feeling incredibly empty and incredibly like worn out after watching an episode because there's just a lot going on. But the reason I wanted to keep watching was not really for the intrigue, but it was because I felt like I wanted to stay with her. Like I wanted to stay in her world and as her guide, as her comfort, I wanted to be around her to say, Hey, it's going to be okay. Even though I know it's not, I mean, we know the ending from the very beginning. So that's not even a spoiler, but to see this thing play out and to know that as characters in this series, they were possibly, um, you know, connected to this and possible causes. That's one of the themes that's played through, but also as an audience in wanting to be a hero to this individual to wanting to be a savior in a sense. I felt that as I was watching this performance, having it go over 13 episodes was challenging emotionally because part of me wanted it to be over quickly. Part of me wanted to have three hours and I'm done two hours and I'm done. This was 13 hours. And so of the things I watched this year, 
13 Reasons Why really stood out as probably the most visceral and the performances within it really amplified that, particularly the uh, performance of Catherine Langford who played Hannah. It's good stuff. I don't, I don't fault you. Um, it was something we covered and something we watched this year. And it was, I mean, it's definitely worthy of being on this list as far as how emotionally affecting it was. I don't think that I know that either of us, I don't think anybody that watched that could have come out of that without having experienced some sort of deep emotions one way or the other. So totally understand it. Well, last category, Patrick, uh, this one is our most anticipated films of 2017. 18. 18. That's next year. Right. <laughs> I just now noticed, by the way, that next to my notes, it says in parentheses, three total. But I feel like last year we had five. Or maybe I was cheating last year. Yeah, we'll <laughs> and just go ahead and say you were cheating last year. So that means I, I did five naturally. <laughs> <laughs> And then I added cheating again. So like, in a few years from now, it's going to be like a most anticipated 20. Okay. Okay. Um, so <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm realizing this in real time on the podcast and I apologize. Um, so listeners, you're going to get a couple extras from, from me. So I guess I'll start. Uh, let's see. So are we going turpentine on this too? I turpentine no it's late it is late turpentine, <laughs> turpentine. <laughs> let's do some trivia let's do some trivia oh gosh we might be better at this hour actually uh <laughs> can't get worse right right <laughs> um three of my fa- five from last year actually made my top 12 of this year so i feel really good about that and i wanted to point that out that was that was cool to me that um those movies i was most anticipating actually they all panned out the other two haven't been released, so pretty much perfect success rate. Uh, so those two are going to carry over. The thing that's really cool about 2018, my favorite genre is science fiction. And we have some really intriguing sci-fi coming up. And I'm not even talking about like the superhero sci-fi or Ready Player One and blockbuster sci-fi or Han Solo's uh, solo, solo movie. I'm not even talking about that stuff. I'm talking about things like Ad Astra, which is a, a film directed by James Gray, who just made The Lost City of Z, which I absolutely loved. He's coming out with a science fiction film. Um, there's another one called High Life, directed by Claire Denis, featuring uh, Robert Pattinson. Uh, this one's coming out next year. Very interesting concept about criminals being um, willing, you know, kind of like a suicide squad type deal where they can go off into explore a black hole uh, while being sexually experimented on. Uh, in order to gain some freedom. So I'm intrigued by that one. Uh, and then we even get stuff like The Predator, Shane Black's new movie uh, about that franchise. So that's pretty exciting and interesting to me. But one of those two that carry over, they're actually both sci-fi as well. I'll hit those first. That's God Particle. Uh, God Particle is another Cloverfield uh, universe film set in space this time. We've been waiting on this one for ever since uh, 10 Cloverfield Lane kind of got announced and this one's release dates continually been pushed back. I hope that it's stopped being pushed back and we actually get to watch it in February of next year. Uh, this one stars Elizabeth Debicki, Daniel Bruhl, who I have really grown to love. Uh, Gugu Mbatha-Raw. I have no idea if I said that right. Uh, David Oyelowo and more. 
This is about a team of astronauts aboard an international space station who find themselves alone after a scientific experiment involving a particle accelerator makes the Earth vanish. When a space shuttle appears, the space station crew must fight for survival following their horrible discovery. Man, if that's not a freaking interesting and compelling concept, I don't know what is. I'm stoked, stoked, stoked for this movie, Patrick. So, God Particle. Well, you and me both, my friend, because I've been anticipating this as long as you have. And I wonder if it's going to get a name change or if it's just going to stick to being the God Particle, which would be fine. We heard it was at one point. And then it didn't. And so, yeah, who knows? Well, you've got to put Cloverfield somewhere in there. The the Cloverfield particle. Cloverfield. Maybe they'll name it the Cloverfield particle at the end of the movie, and that'll be the tie-in. Ooh. There we go. Perfect. Uh, I, yeah. But yeah, that's definitely one of my most anticipated ones coming out potentially next year. Uh, the the, the uh, Another one really was one that I didn't even know was coming out. And this is actually going to come out near the end of the year. This is actually around next Christmas. And it's a Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. And I'll tell you, I'm a huge fan of the source material uh, that Dan Slott wrote back, uh, I want to say, two years ago. It's a huge, like, thick, I've got the the hardcover, I think. Um, But it's a huge just story that involves all these Spider-Men, (laughs) Spider-Men? From tons of universes. It's like this multiverse group of spider-men that come together to fight uh, a big kind of evil but what intrigues me about this is not just the story and the potential but the way in which the trailer is is visualized we have this interesting animation style that cuts every once in a while to a flat comic book panel type of style and it makes me wonder if we're going to get that throughout the the movie and if that's a key element in changing tones and changing whatever, if it's going to be a, a thematic or a purposeful shift, I, I, I kind of hope it is because that's really what drew me to it. Drew, see, I did that comic book, whatever. But I, I'm, I'm just looking forward to it. I love Miles Morales and I love the, the ultimate universe where, where he existed before Marvel did its thing a couple of years ago and basically kind of kind of exploding or imploding both universes. And I'm just, ex- I'm excited about seeing what this particular story looks like on the big screen with that potential, potentially incredible animation style. Was that number one and two for you? Was God Particle on your list? Yes, it was. So oh, one and two, I kind of, I'm going to have to catch up. Well, into the, Spider-Verse is a, was an honorable mention for me. I actually saw the trailer today on the big screen for the first time, and it mm-hmm. looks even better. I mean, it's almost like this Tron-esque animation yeah. style. Yeah, yeah. Totally, I mean, I love it. I love the way it pops. Uh, I've heard people complain about it. I'm like, what is wrong with you? Uh, and the guys behind this story are, is it is it Lord? Is it Phil Lord and... It's the guys behind the Lego movie. Behind the Lego movie. So it's the team behind the Lego movie. Yeah, which really excites me. And I I like you. I like Miles Morales. I need to read this. That probably is going on my to-do list for 2018. I've got 12 months now. I'd like to read it before the the film comes out. So Um, I'll hit up a couple more then. (laughs) Save yours. The other one of mine that's carrying over is Annihilation, another sci-fi. This is based on a book by Jeff Vandermeer. Uh, It's going to be written and directed by... Alex Garland of Ex Machina fame. 
And this one has a very mysterious premise that grabbed me right away. Uh, a bio- biologist signs up for a dangerous secret expedition where the laws of nature don't apply. And it, she leads an all-female team of explorers into a deadly environmental disaster zone. I believe they are looking for her husband, uh, who is played by Oliver, Oliver Oscar Isaac, which is fantastic. He's coming back uh, for another turn with Alex Garland. The cast includes Natalie Portman, who I love, Jennifer Jason Lee, Tessa Thompson, awesome, and Gina Rodriguez. So, fantastic cast. The first trailers have come out. I will say that I was pretty intrigued uh, by the first one. I wasn't blown away by it, but it was definitely the mystery of what this is going to look like. It almost looks like an oil sheen in the sky. It's really weird, Uh, but I'm super stoked for this one and hoping that it is phenomenal. Another one that I'm looking forward to is a Western. Uh, I found this one on a list while I was trying to come up with some, some good ones. This is called the sisters brothers. And it's a terrible title. Frankly, I don't like the title because it is messing up my head, but the is directed by Jacques Audiard, a foreign director the cast includes Joaquin Phoenix, John C. Riley, Riz Ahmed, and Jake Gyllenhaal and Rucker Hauer. That is what drew me to this was Western and that cast. Basically, it's a darkly comic Western uh, about 1850s Oregon, where a gold prospector is chased by the infamous duo of assassins, the Sisters Brothers. Uh, sounds pretty cool to me. I really like Westerns, and this was the one that stuck out the most for next year. Like I said, Joaquin Phoenix and Jake Gyllenhaal on screen together. I, I mean, I, yes, I, I don't, I don't know how this could go wrong to be honest. So, uh, pretty excited about that one. I'll give one more and then let you go. Um, Incredibles two. Uh, I, you know, I, this list is so hard to make because there's a ton that could go on it. But Incredibles is my favorite Pixar film still to date, uh, barely, but it is. And this is its sequel coming. 15-ish years later. I don't remember the exact uh, year that Incredibles came out, but it's been a while. I don't really have much else to say. I'm extremely excited, and I'm also extremely nervous. But in Bradbird, we trust, I guess. Yeah, why not? I mean, it gave us... Yeah, I like that. Um, I have a couple of honorable mentions. Ready Player One is up there. I'm excited about it. I know that you're not very high on the trailers. The second one kind of appealed to you a little bit more, but you've read the book like 12 times, so you have more of an intimate knowledge of it. I've only read it twice. Uh, once was read to me by Mr. Will Wheaton. Uh, the other next, the other time was just actually reading it. Um, and there's a there's a movie that might be on hold, but I hope it's not. It's the uh, it's called Bohemian Rhapsody. It's a biopic about um, the, uh, <laughs> well, if you don't know, then you need to be educated. But it's um, it, it chronicles Freddie Mercury's life with Queen uh, and particularly the, the appearance at Live Aid in 1985. It's since been put on kind of a hold. Brian Singer was the director and he quit. So I don't know what's going to happen with that. But I hope that it gets finished because... Um, you know, it looks really good. Remy Malik is playing Freddie Mercury, and the stills that I've seen are pretty incredible. It's 
It's unreal. It's uncanny, honestly. Yeah. That one still of him with his legs spread and the mic between his legs, like yeah. it looks like Freddie Mercury. Yeah, well, as it should. I know, but I, it's just it is like at first glance you can't tell the difference. So uh, yeah, yeah, I'm. I, that's probably another one where kind of like Love and Mercy. It's not something I'm super into, but right. Um, so that's pretty cool. I, I'm glad that you have something like that you're looking forward to. Yeah. The uh, the third one, and one that I actually didn't find out about until maybe a month ago, it was um, Mary Poppins Returns, and it's Emily a, Blunt, baby. Exactly. It's not a. It's not a. It's not a, a reimagining. It's actually a sequel. And uh, in Depression Era London, this is the synopsis: A now grown Jane and Michael Banks, along with Michael's three children, are visited by the enigmatic Mary Poppins following a personal loss through her unique magical skills. Yes. And with the aid of her friend, Jack, she helps the family rediscover the joy and wonder missing in their lives, which I think is something of a social need that we need to rediscover the joy and wonder missing in our lives. Um, I, I just, I loved Mary Poppins. We actually let, uh, uh, let my expose my son to it a couple of weeks ago. And he seemed to enjoy it. I forgot, man, how incredible the special effects were. And was reading about the fact that this movie, Mary Poppins, was was given the Oscar for best special effects or whatever the the category was because it's pretty incredible. You got that that carpet bag that pulls out, you know, lampshades and all these different things. And what I love is that this isn't a reimagining that we don't have to retell this story. That it's an extension. It's it's a refreshing story using a popular property. And so to be able to see this on the big screen, I hope that it captures the magic of the original in some ways, but still gives us a fresh take on these characters. Well, I'm right there with you. I'm really excited about this one as well. I love Emily Blunt. I think she's going to be perfect for this. This was one where I was a little bit nervous when I heard it was going to exist. But then when we got that plot synopsis, I felt the exact same way as you. I was like, yes, that's neat. That's fresh. That's new. That could work. Um, so I, hopefully it's going to be a musical, right? It should be. I so, would hope so. So we needed musicals to look forward to. And hopefully we're going to get another great one. Speaking of musicals, my last main pick here is from the man who made my favorite musical. And that is Damien Chazelle. His next film is coming out next year. Starring, again, Ryan Gosling. This one's called First Man, and it's going to be his first non-musical film. Although, I'm guessing that he's going to squeeze a reference to jazz in there somewhere. Uh, this one is more of an epic docudrama. It's, Ryan Gosling is going to be Neil Armstrong. And it's going to chronicle the entire history of the space race. Starting in 1961 and culminating in Armstrong's uh, July 21st, 1969 walk on the lunar surface. It's going to be timed to uh, anticipate the 50th anniversary of that event. And I, I just, the movie has, this could be a really visionary, stirring reminder of what America used to do and what America could once do. I really think that Chazelle can handle this. I have the utmost confidence in him. And honestly, I just can't wait to see what he can do without music being the main point of his story. So 
I am very intrigued by this. I'm very interested. I love the man and what he's done so far. So I'm hoping that this is going to be another Ryan Gosling. Great movie for me. Um, well, yeah, you know, whoever he's going to be up against in terms of his acting is probably going to win an Oscar because he, Ryan he doesn't need anybody. It's him in a spacecraft. So the like spacecraft him in, him is in probably, space. Space is probably the moon. The moon is going to win the Oscar for uh, it's going to get nominated. We can just already we'll just already get, just call that right now. The moon will get a nomination for best supporting actor. That's awesome. Uh, you named off one of my honorable mentions in which was Into the Spider Verse. The others, Avengers: Infinity War. I, you know, I've been lackluster on Marvel for a long time, but both it and Black Panther actually have me excited. The trailers for those they look different they look like something you know i'm ready to see those two films i'm ready for the culmination now of what all of these dozen plus marvel movies have led to and then black panther looks just so bizarre and special so i'm really excited to see what what can be done with that one the last one is called if beale street could talk and this is barry jenkins next film uh the award-winning director of, of moonlight from last year and this is a collaboration with James Baldwin. Uh, James Baldwin is an author, uh, recently had a documentary come out called I Am Not Your Negro that is very moving, very powerful story. And they're working together on James Baldwin's novel, If Bill, Bill Street Could Talk. It's about a 19-year-old girl uh, who is with a 22-year-old sculptor. And they become engaged, and she becomes pregnant. But then he is falsely accused of raping a Puerto Rico woman. He is set up by a cop and it's all about them tirelessly working uh, feverishly even to try and have him proven innocent uh, before he's basically put away forever. So seems like a compelling subject matter for this day and age. Uh, and almost, you know, I don't know. I, I just, I trust Barry Jenkins now after what I saw him do with moonlight. So, yeah. And I like, uh, I've read James Baldwin stuff. It's really good. Yeah, I think I think that team up could be really amazing. Me too. Well, that's it, man. Again, our mini sode is not so many, but it's amazing and fun and awesome and exciting. I love looking back at the year we just had and then looking forward to the next one. Wow. I can't believe this is our second time doing this. Well, wow, and it was just as fun this time around too. What a ride. Yes, it was. Well, listeners, we hope you've enjoyed this. If you've had any thoughts, please come join us in our Facebook discussion group. Find us on Twitter. Um, we're going to kind of pare down the, the goodbyes here. You can find that on other episodes. And let us know what you thought. Uh, send us an email or something. But we'd love to hear your picks for these categories as well. Until next time, stay positive. And keep feeling film. <laughs>